First John chapter one verse one. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. I love how John writes. Now we we already went over these verses Sunday morning, but I have been reading them and reading them, and I hope you have too. Remember, that's your homework assignment as we're in First John, is to read First John. And I would not ask you to do so if I didn't know the blessing that will come of simply pouring over this letter. But he writes so interestingly at the outset here, what was from the beginning? He doesn't say who was from the beginning. The King James translates it, that which is from the beginning. What is from the beginning? That which is from the beginning. And so begins one of three little letters here at the end of the New Testament, truly the end of the Bible, written at the end of the first century, at the end of John's life. It's the 90s AD. John is in his late 90s, if not a centenarian, a hundred years of age, the eldest and last surviving apostle of Jesus Christ, the longest living on earth of any of the apostles, the one who had more time in the flesh and walking with the Spirit to consider Jesus and to think about Him and to not just reminisce, but put together all that that Jesus taught and did, who in fact... Jesus was, and John recognizing who Jesus is. And yet he begins this, what? What was from the beginning? That which was from the beginning. Now, we know, we understand, we get pretty quickly that the what, or the that which was, is a who. But it's more than a who. And you need to get this. John's Gospel is similar in terms of how he begins, let me read it to you again, as we did on Sunday morning, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now in the Gospel, John pretty quickly gets to a he. Right? So it's, it's in the beginning was the Word, but the Word is very clearly a he. Very clearly, Jesus Christ, He gets to that down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. So the Word's a He, we understand that. But in 1 John, He's still processing, He's still gaining more and more revelation and understanding, and in fact, if 1 John is written after the revelation, which we put at the end of the Bible, but it's entirely likely this letter was written after revelation, then John's mind is blown. He is writing this from a different perspective than he had prior to his exile on the island of Patmos when he saw Jesus in all his glory. 
No wonder he begins what was from the beginning. Or that which was from the beginning rather than who. What are you getting at, Rick? Listen, listen. He immediately moves from what was from the beginning and he calls the what the word of life. And then in verse 2 he calls, he calls the life the eternal life. The word of life, the life, the eternal life. That's what this, this what is. And then finally in verse 3 he mentions the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. And in these three verses, remember this is simple Koine Greek. So this is the most simple, common street Greek. This is what the poorest of the poor would speak. If you had no education, you would speak Koine Greek. Simple to read, simple in, in word structure, and yet from my perspective, some of the most profound truth in all of Scripture. And what he says in these simple words, with these simple words, is intriguing and it is intentional. John is giving ear witness and eyewitness and even more so physical contact testimony of a man, but of much more than a man. Much more than a man. The Gospel of John, he focuses in on the man, Jesus Christ, who is God. But this letter of John, of 1 John, is much more than a man. It's in person, in presentation, in proclamation. He refers to this as the Word of Life manifested. The Word of Life. And I want you to... I encourage you to make room in your head to, to grasp this. Make room in your heart to understand. The word of life manifested. That is visible and audible and tangible. We have seen the word of life, he's saying. This is the eternal life that he describes that creates then fellowship, koinonia, which cannot be experienced anywhere else. As I said on Sunday, you cannot get koinonia anywhere else or from the word of life, from the eternal life. This is the Christ who is, as God, as John will sum up in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, this is Christ who is true God and eternal life. Big. That's huge. That's why he doesn't start out who was from the beginning, but what was from the beginning. Because this is, this is eternal life. This is the summation of, of all truth. Jesus, the man, is much more than a man. Oh, He is a man, don't get me wrong. Fully man and fully God, but even more than that. And Jesus said this. This is, this is what's so mind-boggling. What was from the beginning? This, this much more than a man, this concept that John is presenting Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus is moving in. Jesus is setting up house in you, in me, in anyone who believes. This, this one who is more than a man. This one who is the eternal life who is true God, said, John 15, verse 4, Abide in Me, and I in you. Talking to Mark about this just earlier this week. And he said, you know, the picture I get of that abiding 
he and me and, and I and him is, is, like, is like an infant in the womb. Because when the mother breathes in air, the air gets to the infant. When the blood flows in the mother, the blood flows to the infant. When the mother eats, the infant gets fed. You know, he says, get those Brussels sprouts out of here. I mean, it's just, it's just this, this symbiotic relationship. And that's what we have with Jesus. Abiding in us, and we abide in Him. Jesus said, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. Your Christianity will not work if you're not walking in the light. If you're not abiding in Jesus, it doesn't work. You can't bear fruit. Not fruit that's going to last. He says, I am the vine, John 15, 5. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. We've seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We abide in Him. He abides in us. This is life, man. This is life. And this life is the one who freely offers and deeply desires koinonia with you. And that should just blow our minds to think about. That Jesus, who is a man, who is God, who is so much more than a man, Jesus, who is the full expression of eternal life, wants to be in fellowship with you and with me. I remember several years ago, a Christian artist was talking about how Friends of, of hers would say, hey, I met so-and-so, or I got to go see so-and-so in concert, or I, I know so-and-so, and she very quietly said, I know Jesus. I mean, is there anyone greater? Is there anything better than knowing Him and being in fellowship with Him? And so, of course, John continues, verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Our joy. He's not talking distantly. He's not saying, I want to write this to you so my joy is complete. Our joy all together, this is koinonia gladness. This is a shared joy. Our unparalleled contentment in forever fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Our joy. Because this is the message, verse 5. We have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. John is going to give two profound statements in this letter that give us this massive representation or understanding of the nature of God. God is light and God is love. Not that God is just in the light. God is light. And not that God loves. He is love. And this is the full description of God. He is light in Him. There is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And for the rest of chapter 1 and on through chapter 2 in this letter, that's the focus, walking in the light. In fact, let me give you a quick outline for 1 John. It divides up really easily, very nicely, into John's three favorite words. He loves the word light. He uses that word more than any other New Testament writer. He loves the word love. Using that, as I shared on Sunday, 53 times in these three little letters. And he loves the word life. See, Paul will talk about faith, hope, and love. John will talk about light, love, and life. These are the words that John uses. And this is the breakdown of 1 John walking in the light. That's chapters 1 and 2. We'll get partway into chapter 2 tonight. Probably won't finish it. Walking in the light. Secondly, beginning in chapters 3 and 4, living in the love. And then finally in chapter 5, loving the life. Walking in the light, chapters 1 and 2, living the love. Chapters 3 and 4, and loving the life, chapter 5. And so tonight, we're going to talk about what it means to walk in the light. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, again, I read to you, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now John freely uses this word light, uses it a lot. And and as Christians, if you have spent any time in church, or if you have spent any time in reading the Bible or Christian teachings... After a while, light just becomes one of our words. You know, we're in the light. We're walking in the light. We're going to walk this out in the light together. And it's one of those words that can be used so much and so often that it becomes just this vague thing. You walking in the light this week? Oh yeah, I'm walking in the light. What does that mean? I love that John breaks it down. I was thinking this afternoon, it's funny, that there, sometimes you can take a single verse and think, okay, what does this verse mean? And you start to spin out different responses and ideas and thoughts about what this means and give your own opinion on what it means. And you realize John tells us what it means in the entire chapter 1 and 2. He explains what it means to walk in the light. So let me give you seven things tonight that we pick up walking through these chapters about walking in the light. Some of them may seem pretty obvious, but think about them with me. Number one. There is no darkness in the light. There is no darkness in the light. Now you may say, no duh, but listen to me. In Him, there is no darkness at all. I've got to underscore this. We talked about it briefly on Sunday. But no darkness means that there is no depravity where God is concerned and no depression. That there is no evil and there is no anxiety. There's no wickedness. And there's no fear. There's no darkness at all. We could make lists here tonight of the things that darkness represents. When you think about what is darkness and what's in the darkness. And what's dark. All kinds of things that we could write out here. None of that exists where God is. He is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. But please hear me on this. I thought about this after the fact on Sunday morning. I was not saying and I am not saying that there are, there's no room for depressed, anxious, or fearful people where God is. Because if, 
if we couldn't come to God in our depression and our anxiety and our fear, we'd be in big fat trouble. Because we all have those moments of depression and anxiety and fear, doubts, uncertainties, worries, stress. These things are not of the light. But that's the point. We come out of the darkness and into the light. When we come into His presence, we understand that people who are depressed or anxious or fearful are not rejected by God, but the reality is that these conditions do not exist in God. So the answer to healing anxiety is the presence of God. The answer to dealing with depression is the presence of God. Handling fears, run to Jesus. Because in the presence of the Lord, there is no darkness. There is only light. And by the way, Jesus doesn't wear these things Himself. You never see Jesus fearful. You never see Him anxious. You never see Him depressed. Whoa, Rick, He's a man of sorrows. Yeah, sorrowful for our sin. And yet... He is wrapped in, he is, he is anointed with the oil of gladness above all his enemies. No one was more glad than Jesus. In the light. He doesn't wear these things himself. He doesn't cause these things. Jesus will never cause you to be anxious. Jesus will never bring depression into your life. Jesus isn't going to use the fear factor. And He doesn't exacerbate these things in us. In fact, just the opposite. What the Bible tells us, Isaiah 42.3, is a bruised reed He will not break. And a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's going to make it right. When the deeply depressed person comes to Jesus, He doesn't smack him on the head and say, there's no darkness in light. He just pushes back the darkness by the light. In Christ, you could say anxiety is extinguished and depression is snuffed out and fear is broken off here in the light. Now I told you John uses light more than any other New Testament writer. And he sees Jesus as not only in the light, but He is the light. Hold that thought for just a moment. John chapter 1, verse 5, again, this is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is light. John chapter 1, verse 5, the Gospel of John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Darkness doesn't get light. You tell someone, run to Jesus and your depression will be healed in Jesus and it doesn't make sense to the world. Dealing with an anxiety disorder? Bring it to the Lord. Oh, yeah, no, no. I'd rather pay thousands of dollars to a counselor who's a human being too. Fearful? You need Jesus. Oh, I don't know. That just seems too easy. And in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 9, it tells us there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. You want an enlightenment? You want understanding? Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light 
of life, which is what was from the beginning. The light of life, eternal life. This is so big. This is so huge. This is John, again, old man John, having processed and thought about and chewed on and considered Jesus for all these years, 60, 70 years of his life. And now he's saying, this is more than I ever thought it was. The light. The light of life. You know what? To walk in the light where there is no darkness is to walk in the Spirit. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit of the Lord is also the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Well, that's light. Spirit of the Lord is counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's all eyes wide open coming into the light. That's what coming into the presence of Jesus does. And also in the light, where there is no darkness, the fruit is best cultivated. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, no darkness. These are the things that happen in light. And so John is very clear. There is no darkness in the light. But there's also no something else. There's no deception in the light. No darkness, no deception, because in the light is pure truth. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. To walk in the darkness is to walk in deception. To walk in the light is to walk in truth. There's no deception in the light. By the way, along with light, love, and life, John also uses the word truth more than any other writer. 26 times in his gospel he uses the word for truth. 10 times in 1 John, 5 times in 2 John, and 5 more times in 3 John he uses the word truth. Over and over and over and over. Why? Because when you're walking in the light, there's truth. Because Jesus said, I am the truth. The Greek word for truth is aletheia. And aletheia, it's interesting, if you go back, the etymology of this word, where it originates, and what it originally meant was real in the absolute sense. So what we use the word, we say truth. It's, it's the truth. Are you telling me the truth? It's what's genuinely real. It's what's authentic. Absolutely. Originally, going all the way back, it was a word that they used for no concealment. So where there's truth, it's nothing is concealed. Well, that's the light, isn't it? You flip on the light, you see it all. You ever walk through the house in the dark of night at 12 or 1 in the morning? It's a little weird. It's a little creepy. You know, My house, which during the day is a, a nice, airy, open, wonderful place to be, at night is pretty spooky. Until you turn on the light. And there, nothing's concealed. You can see it all. It, it, it means something as it really is. And historians used to use the word, Greek historians used aletheia to denote real events from Greek mythology. Aletheia. This isn't just a story. This is what is true. And Jesus said, I remind you, John 14, 6, I am the truth. I am the truth. In John 8, where Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, he's talking about himself. Because He is the light. He is the truth. And you know what that means? It means you cannot be deceived by Jesus. 
I often think what it must be like, because I have to go back awfully far. I, I was I was brought up in church, you know, from the day I was born. I think that afternoon they had me in church. And so it's hard for me even sometimes to conceive what's it like to come into a church and not know anything about Jesus because I just, I was introduced very early on. And I learned of Him and I had to go through what a lot of church kids go through and that is rejecting and then coming back to faith. I've heard it all so it becomes so commonplace until suddenly the Spirit gets hold of you and then it becomes aletheia. True. Real. But I wonder sometimes what it's like for a person to come in not having been taught Jesus. Not knowing who He is. And they may sit down in the back next to Daniel. I'm just kidding, Daniel. They may sit back there and, and they're watching. And they're checking it out. And they hear the pastor pray something like, Lord, please, bring everybody here without faith into knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they open their eye and look around. Are they going to do something to me? Something going to take control of me and force me in? Hey, you can't be tricked by Jesus. He doesn't play those games. You cannot be deceived by Him. And by the way, you cannot be deceptive in Him. Which means if you're lying and cheating and deceiving, you're not walking in the light. can't do it. I, I am saying you cannot do that. Be in Jesus and be deceptive. And hold that thought. Verse 7, again, he says, If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And that verse it needs breaking down. I mean, all, there are three aspects of this that we'll look at, but we're still talking about that there's no deception in the light. But get this, it's huge. It says He Himself is in the light. If we walk in the light, who is Jesus, as He Himself is in the light. Do, do you see? He's in the light, and He is the light. Which actually makes a lot of sense. John 12.46, He said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. He's in the light, but He is the light. Think about that. A light bulb is in the midst of the light that it gives. So it is the light, but it is also in the light, right? It has to be, because it's giving off the light. The sun is at the center of the light that it gives. So it gives the light, and it is the light. It's in the light. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but when you look up at the sun in the sky, it's actually in its own light. How weird is that? That's Jesus. That's a a picture of Jesus Himself. No darkness. No deception. And true koinonia, as I said Sunday, can only be experienced as we walk in the light. You cannot know fellowship outside of Jesus Christ. Which means anytime any use really of the word koinonia, of the word fellowship, is, is a watered down, pale use of the word when not associated with Jesus. When someone says, yeah, we're having fellowship, but they're not talking about fellowship in the Lord, it's not fellowship. Number three in our listing here, there is no darkness in the light. There is no deception in the light. Instead, there is, number three, the durability of koinonia. And what makes koinonia, true fellowship in Jesus, different than all other relating or grouping up with people is it is durable. It's eternal. 
That is the fellowship that we share here and now tonight is eternal. This goes on forever. Not my teaching, mind you. But our fellowship in the light is durable. It is forever. We have fellowship with one another in the light. Amos chapter 3, verse 3. The prophet says, can two walk together except they be agreed? Fellowship in the light. This works in all relationships. If you want connection, if you want relationship, you got to be honest. you got to be open. you got to walk together in the light. Open, honest transparency. It's, it's, it's the model for marriage. It's the model for family, for friendships, for Christian fellowship. Churches fall apart when people start walking in the dark. When people start talking in the shadows. When people start talking behind one another's backs. When division begins to happen and darkness comes in, churches fall apart. But the church that walks in the light, as he is in the light, has fellowship with one another. It is key to healthy fellowship in a church body. And that is just openness with each other. But this this works even in business. To walk in the light, you have fellowship. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, listen, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's walking in the light. As He is in the light and we have fellowship with each other. The durability of koinonia. It's forever. My brother used to make fun of this old song. Remember the Michael W. Smith song, Friends? It was like the anthem of the 80s for Christians. A friend's a friend forever. The Lord's the Lord of him. And a friend will not say never because the welcome never ends. Though it's hard to let you go, in the Father's hands, I know that a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. I can't even believe I remember the whole chorus. (laughs) And we used to make fun of that. Your friend's a friend forever. Forever? If the Lord's the Lord of him, but not if he's not. But that's true. Do you realize that Friendship is not forever unless the Lord is the Lord of you both. It doesn't last. That's the forever fellowship that we're talking about. The durability of fellowship. If we walk in the light. As He Himself is in the light. That is, He is the light and He's in the light. And we have fellowship with one another in the light. And and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Number four. There is no darkness. There is no deception. There is durability of fellowship. And there is, number four, the deep cleansing of His blood in the light. What what is the connection of fellowship and the deep cleansing of His blood? You can't have one without the other. See, this is another thing that makes koinonia different makes koinonia something that can only happen among followers of Jesus Christ. You cannot have fellowship unless we have the cleansing of His blood. We can't even be in the light unless we have been cleansed by His blood so to walk in the light. That blood sacrifice of Jesus opened the way that we could be in the presence of God, in the light of His presence, and thereby share this eternal fellowship with each other and both fellowship and 
and the cleansing of His blood have both always been on the table. Go back to Genesis 22, verse 8. Think about this. Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah. And Isaac says to his father, we got wood for sacrifice. We're carrying a fire. Where's the burnt offering? And Abraham knows. But he wisely says to his son that profound statement that becomes prophecy. God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You know what the rest of that verse says? So the two of them walked on together. Because where there is the sacrifice of Jesus, there is the fellowship of togetherness. God will provide the burnt offering so we can walk together. Jesus provided the sacrifice so that we could be in fellowship one with another. How does that work? I'm not looking at you saying you're not quite good enough. Or I see too many sins in you that I I, I can't be around you. No, see, Jesus has removed all of that. So that we look at each other and go, Hey, I've been cleansed by His blood. You've been cleansed by His blood. So together, we can now walk. Isaiah 1.18 What did the Lord say? He said, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. We can't even reason with God unless He takes away our sin. And Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. He says, In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. A fount will be opened for all the people of Israel. In that day, Zechariah prophesies. In what day? In the day, which he has just said in Zechariah 12.10, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So the togetherness then follows the piercing. It follows the sacrifice. For the nation of Israel, that day is the day of Jesus' coming. When they will look on Him as He comes in the clouds with great glory, they will look on Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only Son, the Bible tells us. Here's the point. Anytime anyone looks with faith on Him whom they have pierced, the deep cleansing of His blood begins to flow and fellowship takes place. As His blood cleanses us, we come into fellowship with Jesus and with God the Father, and we come into fellowship with one another. We have been washed clean so that we can walk on together. Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice, and so together we walk on. Fellowship. The deep cleansing flow. Hebrews 9.13 says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Where the cleansing blood flows, my conscience is clean. And so I can walk with you. And we can walk together in fellowship, in openness, in honesty. That, that works so practically because I don't have anything to hide. Think about that. In most of our relationships outside of Christ, there are things you're not going to share. You've got to be careful. Someone might use it against you. It could be turned on you at work. 
If you work in a non-Christian setting, you know you got to be kind of careful. You need to be alert. People will use things against you. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all transgression. It's marvelous. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I love that old other old hymn. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, that is foundational in this letter. And you've got to understand that. John says this first... And it must be understood if we're going to understand what he's talking about later in the letter, specifically down in chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, if you read that and you are born again, but you have sinned, you go, Oh, oy vey, what happens? Uh, maybe I wasn't born of God. No, go back to chapter 1, verse 8, and you see if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So John acknowledges right up front, look, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3, 23 and 24. We've all sinned. We all are capable of sin. We all will sin again. But here's the thing. We all sin. But we don't have to practice it. I wish I had been told that as a teenager. We all sin, but we don't have to practice sin. Man, how many years did I spend in the defeatist attitude that when I sinned, I blew it, so I might as well just keep blowing it. We don't have to practice sin. And John is going to attack that beautifully further on into the letter. But instead, we walk in the light as He is in the light genuinely and and we can confess our sin. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar And His Word is not in us. Why? Because He says, be sure your sin will find you out. God is clear. The heart of man is desperately sick. We're going to sin. We have a sin nature. The Word declares that. And if we try to say that we're sinless, we're denying the Word of God. And so we're making Him a liar. No darkness means no deception. And the durability of fellowship with God and with each other, it means the deep cleansing of the blood of Christ. And it also means, number five, no denial. No denial. You can say no self-deception. It opens the door for confession. Confession. Man, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive. I want to clarify something here because Paul makes this clear as well. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom, Paul says, I am chief. 
I am big chief sinner man. That's Paul's self-description. I am the chief of all the sinners, and I am the one He came to save. And again, we have all sinned. We all need Jesus, and so we confess. Why? Because we all have sinned. So we can confess one to another because we've all done it. Because we're all guilty until washed by the blood of Christ. And the beautiful thing about confession, you know, you don't confess so that God will then kick in the the healing. God knows what you did. You're not going to surprise Him, Lord, i got to tell you something, I did such and such. And He's like, oh! Did you hear that? No, He knows. Confession is healing for you and for me. When I confess, you know, not to be gross, but it's kind of like barfing. When you are really sick with the flu, I remember I was at camp one time. Worst flu I ever had. I may have told this story before. If I have, I'm sorry. It's another vomit story. But I was really sick. And for like three or four days, just could not keep anything down. And I remember when the sickness broke. It was late at night. I I had been feeling at least good enough to... They they had me off in in quarantine, but I was feeling good enough that they brought me out of quarantine because Cheryl, who was also counseling at that camp that summer, was so sick she had to be in the quarantine. So they moved me out and back into the cabin. They figured at this point, well, at this point enough campers were... The whole camp was throwing up all week. It was just... It was a barf-arama, okay? But I go back to the cabin, and I'm lying there in the bed, and I had been feeling a little bit better, but all of a sudden, oh no... Here comes the churning and burning. and So I get up and I head out the door into the darkness and there on the side of the cabin I just lost everything that was left. And instantly I felt better. And instantly I knew, I'm done. That's the last time. I also prayed that that would be the last time for the rest of my life. (laughs) And came back into the cabin and went to sleep and, and woke up in the morning 100%. Felt great. That's confession. It's this gross, ugly, diseased, sick stuff that's in us that that we've done. And and, and the longer we try to hide it, the more we hold on to it and hold it back, the sicker we feel, the fever goes up, the body aches, the heart aches, and then blah, and we get it out. And suddenly, well, now there's a little hitch in my giddy-up. Now I actually start to feel better. So that's confession. It It is healing, just in and of itself, just to get it out. James put it this way. Chapter 5, verse 15, The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. Now, listen carefully to this, because there are a couple of things on confession we need to understand. And this one is very important. Let me tell you what confession is not. The confessing of my sins is not is not airing my dirty laundry for everybody to see. That's not confession. It's not wearing that sin then as a badge of honor, as if you know you're going to go out of the cabin, throw up on yourself, and walk back in, and go look how dirty I used to be. And yet, oftentimes in the church, people will give testimony and they will spend 90% of the testimony on the vileness of their sin and 10% on the redemption that is in Jesus. That's not confession. That's not 
how confession works. Sin is not my badge of honor. God's grace is my badge of honor. It's like the nine-year-old girl. True story. Nine-year-old girl grew up in a church where there were very emotional altar calls every Sunday morning. This is kind of what she was used to, what she had seen, what had been the example before her. And so she comes down the aisle finally on a Sunday morning ready to give her life to Jesus. And she's asked to give her testimony. And she cried out, nine years old, for years I wandered deep in sin. (laughs) Confession. Confession. Is not throwing up for all to share in your sin. I was handed a little uh, a little piece of paper by Howell Joyner, Jason Joyner's grandfather. He was here on Sunday morning, and I was walking out, and he stopped me and said, Hey, I, I, I want to give this to you. I want you to read this. And it's a little blue piece of paper, written on both sides, typed up, and it just said, My Miracle, at the top of it. And it's a testimony of a miracle that God worked in his life. And it's really cool. I may share the whole thing with you sometime. But I wanted to give you two sentences out of it, because it totally applies to confession. Listen to this. He said, Despite several years of trying to serve God, the devil was successful in getting me to head down the way of evil. And then he says this, I'll not go into the details of that trip. Right on. I'm not going to share the details of that sin. Why not? Because, my friends, the devil is in the details. What do you mean? I mean, Paul wrote in Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, so this is not even someone confessing sin, this is someone caught in sin. You who are spiritual, restore to a one, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, listen, so that you too will not be tempted. Now, why does Paul give that warning? Because contrary to popular belief, you can be tempted by the sin that someone else was just freed from. Sin is a temptress. It is a dark, lurid thing. And even the confession of it can cause someone else to fall. And that is why we don't set up microphones on a Sunday morning and say, come confess your sin before the assembly. And have people come up and walk up and say, well, this is what I did last week. Because someone sitting there might look at that person and go, well... They came out okay. Maybe it's not so bad for me to be in that same place right now because they came out okay. They sinned this horrible sin that I happen to be kind of caught up in and they're fine. So God can forgive that. No worries. Someone else might hear the sin described and go, hmm, that's curious. I wonder what that feels like. I wonder what that might do to me. And the next thing you know, one man's confession becomes another man's sin. I think we've missed the mark on this one. When we think that confession is just sharing it with everybody, what's going on? And nowhere in Scripture does confession replace the Gospel for saving a life. It is the Gospel that saves. It's the grace of God that saves. It's His redemptive work. That's the thing, not my rebellion. 
You know, the Bible tells me, it says in the public forum, that I am to preach Jesus Christ the righteous, not Rick the rebellious. You don't see us going around. We're not called to go around and share our sin lives with everybody else, and then at the last end, at the last minute, tack on, oh, and God save me from it. That's not confession. Confession is freedom, however. Confession is good for the soul and the spirit. Confession, we are called to confess our sin. So listen, here's how it works. Guys, confess to a trusted brother who can hold you to account. Ladies, confess to a faithful sister who can walk through this with you. Um, If you're married, if you're married, for goodness sakes, confess to your spouse. That should be, in, in married life, that's the first person that you confess to and you are accountable to is your spouse. Because we need to confess and we are called to confess. We just don't blanket confess all of our ugliness and sin so that it gets on everybody else. But we go to the person who can walk with us and work with us and hold us to account even as we may hold them to account. Children, confess to your parents as long as you're under their watch because they are there to keep watch over you. I'm a sinner. I can confess that to you tonight. I am a sinner in need of a Savior, but I will not delineate or describe my sins and failures before you all here tonight. Sorry. If you were looking forward to that, it's not going to happen. So we confess. But we confess intentionally and personally. And when it comes to confession before the body, we just say, look, I am like Paul, the chiefest of sinners. But it is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came to save people like me. Well, what about unconfessed sins? See, that's the other, the other issue we've got to deal with is someone might read, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us. And I grew up believing that meant if I didn't confess every single sin, there was one that was hanging on. I'm in trouble if I don't get them all out. And then you begin to think, well... What if I forget to confess? What if I commit some heinous sin, and in the moment I know it, and I think, Lord, I'm going to talk to you about this later. (laughs) And later never comes. And then, like all human beings, we kind of forget how bad we were. Life goes on and we forget. What about that? What if I sin? I don't even know I'm sinning. You ever hurt someone and you didn't know you were hurting someone? I do that all the time. It's amazing. Word gets back to me that I did such and such and so and so was hurt. And I'm like, really? I didn't even know I talked to him that day. Well, that's probably part of the problem. (laughs) What about that? What about the sins I commit? Sins of omission? Sins of commission? You know, I commit intentionally and then there's those I don't intentionally. What about unconfessed sin? Verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know what? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have number 6, a defense attorney. A defense attorney in Jesus. In all our sins and our failures and our inconsistencies and even in the forgetfulness of our past wrongs, we have an advocate. The word there, 
It's parakletos. Same word for the Spirit of God, the paraclete. One who comes alongside. One who stands for you. Or in this context, it's one who pleads your case. If we do sin, we don't sin. We're all sinners, John says. And if we say we're not, we're liars. So don't sin. Confess your sin. And if you do sin, you got an advocate in Jesus. He is He's the best in the biz among defense attorneys. Why? Because, listen, get this, He never pleads your innocence. He doesn't stand before God and, and declare, no, Joel's perfect. He's got it all together. He's got a cleaned up life and I can vouch for him. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus pleads His innocence. Father, just look at me and I'm going to slide Joel in through the side door. (laughs) He is my defense attorney because he takes it on himself. He never pleads your innocence. He never manipulates the evidence to work in his favor. Jesus Christ never plays the legal loopholes. He's perfect in the handling of God's perfect law. You know what He does? He stands there in the courtroom. And when your defense is called, He holds up His hands, those wounded, nail-scarred hands, and the gavel comes down, paid in full. Done. That's justification, by the way. And in verse 2, John writes, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, which is to say the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, is more than enough to save every last human being who has ever lived, every soul that believes. So he's never going to run out of enough blood to cover somebody. Someone's not going to come along and go, I believe in you, Jesus. I'm sorry, we're out this week. We're running a little short of the blood. No, He is the propitiation for everyone. John is not painting universal salvation. He is painting universal invitation. That word propitiation, great word, halasmos, in the Greek, and it literally translates total appeasement or complete satisfaction. Jesus is the complete satisfaction. And note what John doesn't say. He doesn't say he himself offers the propitiation for our sin. He doesn't say that Jesus gives the propitiation for our sins or brings propitiation. He says Christ himself is the propitiation. He's the satisfaction. Revelation 5, 6, John says, I saw before the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Revelation 5, 12, he says, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb that was slain and his sacrifice completely appeases, completely satisfies the wrath of God. Which is why Jesus said... No one comes to the Father but through me. Can't get to God any other way. The wrath must be satisfied. The wrath must be appeased. And Jesus is the propitiation. So again, we walk in the light as He is in the light because He Himself is the light. But more practical, how do we do it? How do we actually walk in the light? And that's what he starts to get into as you go further into chapter 3. 
verse 3, or chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Him. Are you ready for this? If we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him, practically, actually. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. And that is in the light. How did Jesus walk? Walk that way. Walk like that. Do as He did. The pattern is set. The example is given. And if you're not sure about this, spend some time in the Gospels. Pattern your life after His. Follow Him. Do what Jesus did. Corey and I went to a movie on Monday night. Before the movie started, a commercial came on the screen. And when the commercial was done, my son Corey and I looked at each other and just went, that was dumb. It's the new Diet Pepsi commercial. Perhaps you've seen it. Actress Jillian Jacobs. She's walking down the street carrying a Diet Pepsi. And she says, life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. I don't want to live in a yurt. And then she says, if you want to run a marathon, okay. And then she says, I mean, just do you. Listen, Jillian, I've spent 53, almost 54 years doing me and it doesn't work out so well. Why are you drinking the Diet Pepsi? Because you need some sugar to, you know, or something to help you do you better. I don't know, just do you. Their whole new ad campaign for Diet Pepsi is the Because I Can campaign. I live in a year. Why? Because I can. That's stupid. (laughs) I just don't. It's so boring. I look at each other. This is the philosophy of the world. Because I can. I drink Diet Pepsi because I can. Just do you? No. Just do Jesus. And that is number seven in our list. You want to walk in the light as He Himself is in the light? Do as Jesus did. Do as Jesus did. Simple. Walk as He walked. Treat people the way He treated people. Focus on what He focuses on. Pray like He prayed. Well, we only have a few prayers of Jesus. I don't mean that. (laughs) I mean with the consistency of His prayer. We always see Jesus slipping off to pray somewhere. Do as Jesus did. Jesus was always praying. Jesus was always going out of His way for people that no one else cared about. That's a big deal. Jesus didn't just show pity, He showed compassion. Do what Jesus did. Don't do you. Tell you what, doing you will land you a nice spot in hell. Do as Jesus did. Walk in the light as He Himself is in the light. But but maybe you heard verses 3 and verse 5. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And you go... How about 9 out of 10? 3 out of 4, okay. Or verse 5, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. Or, or back in John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, see, that's the problem, Lord. I like to say I love you, but the keeping of the commandments, that's where I get tripped up. 
Isn't that works-based Christianity anyway? Man, if it's about keeping the commandments, that's it for me, I'm out. Because I'm just not that good. Well, first of all, stop belittling yourself and give Him a chance to help you do the commandments. Don't assume I can't walk as He walked. Just start walking. Let Him work in you and through you. Don't be a defeatist before you've even set out on the journey. Here's the thing though. When He says, if we keep His commandments, you got to get this. The word keep is tereo, and it means to hold fast or, or to preserve. We might say, I, I, I hold on to His commandments. I, I love the law of the Lord. I'm not perfect with the law of the Lord. But the law of the Lord is perfect. So I'm going to hold on. I am sometimes holding on for dear life. But I'm holding on. Toreo. I'm going to keep the commandments. But note this. It's in the present active. Which means this. Technically, what it should translate is, if we are keeping His commandments, or whoever is keeping His word, it's, it's someone who's in the process. It's an active keeping. It's not that I've kept them all, and so, okay, now what, Lord? But I'm in the practice of keeping His Word, of keeping His commandments. I am in process. Present active. It's the same uh, word tense that Jesus used in Matthew 7, 7, when He said, ask and it will be given to you. He, he's literally saying, keep on asking and it will be given to you. Seek. That is, keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be open to you. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Those are present active verbs. Keep doing this. And so what John is writing is, if we keep on keeping His commandments, so it's not something that I've done and finished, I've checked the list and I've completed it. No, this is how I'm living. This is lifestyle. You get that? Walking in the light? just means I'm going to keep on with Jesus. I'm going to keep doing as He did. And I'm going to fall down. And I'm going to get right back up because I have an advocate in Jesus who is my propitiation, who already satisfied the wrath. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to start keeping His commandments again. And I'm just going to keep on going. But when Jesus says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, the mood... See, this is the great thing about Greek words. The mood of those words, the mood tense, is the imperative. He's commanding it. Imperatively. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Here... The mood tense is the subjunctive. But listen to what it means. This is marvelous. It is a mood of probability. So it implies the word like may. Uh, Something in the subjunctive would be not that he throws the ball, but he may throw the ball. Or he may be throwing the ball. So how that applies here is wonderful. What John is describing in the active keeping of his commandments in this subjective mood is probability. John is talking about the intentionality of your heart, not the perfection of your behavior. My intention is to keep keeping the commandments. And you know what? I probably will. Mostly. I'm going to keep on keeping on. I'm walking in the light. So I'm looking at Jesus, and I'm, I want to get it right, and I want to do it right, because I've already been saved. Because I've already been covered by His grace. 
We have that song we sing, and I'm going to get the words mixed up in my brain right now, but we're not struggling to be free. We're free to struggle. We are free to keep keeping on. We're free to work at the commandments and to keep the commandments and to mess it up and get right back up and start keeping the commandments again because we live by the grace of God. We have already been saved, washed, clean. He is the propitiation. Do you see? So walking in the light as He is in the light, I'm right there with Jesus. And when I fall down, He picks me up and off we go. And I keep on keeping the commandments. And that's how you know that you're walking in the light. Very practical. If I stop showing up at church, I haven't cracked my Bible in a few months, finding myself doing things that, eh, you know, if I think about it, I probably shouldn't be, but I just not, I'm not going to think about it. Guess what? I'm not walking in the light. It's very easy to see where I am and what I'm doing. So, walking in the light as He is in the light means we're just keeping His Word, we're keeping on with it, we're abiding in Him. We're walking in the same manner as Jesus walked. Doesn't mean we're perfect people. He is. But we're just following after Him. And then He says this. And we'll, we'll finish here. But in verse 7 He says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the Word which you've heard. The Word which you have heard. In verse 8, On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. (laughs) What? What are you talking about, John? Hey, this isn't new. On the other hand, this is new. New, not new. This is going to be a new meme. I'm going to start this one. New, not new. We're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. We'll come back and and, and process through. What is he talking about? This new, not new commandment. Actually, not Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Remember, Sunday evening, 6.30, will be our Sunday service because of Bridge Family Camp. But at the end of verse 8, so we'll, we'll break that down Sunday, but I want you to see this before we close. At the end of verse 8, John makes a stunning an encouraging statement about the state or the situation of these last days. So we're talking about walking in the light, right? Note this, verse 8, he says the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That spun me around this week. The darkness is passing away. See, I always assume, I think... From my perspective, it seems like the darkness is growing. Don't you think so? Haven't we talked about this? In these last days, mockers are going to come with their mocking, Peter said. Jesus even said, because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. Matthew 24, 12. So doesn't it sound like the darkness is expanding and increasing and the light, it just seems like our little church fellowships are getting pushed in more and more and man we can come together and have some light but out there it's just getting darker and darker and darker you know what John says just the opposite this is this is so cool it is not that darkness is increasing and light is fading it is just the opposite 1st Corinthians 7:31 Paul said the form of this world is passing away 1 John 2.17 Later on in in this letter, he says the world is passing away and also its lusts. 
So that, that it's going away. And then again here he says, the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. This is the condition of the last days. This, I believe, is a prophetic word for the last days. Get this. The light is shining. The dark is passing away. The light's already shining. John reveals this. It's toward the end of the first century. And he says, check it out. After 4,000 years of earth's history, now the light is already shining. And the darkness is starting to slip. It is beginning to pass away. And we shine evermore as we love like Jesus loved, as we live like Jesus lived, in the light, as we keep the commandments of God. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters, in the world roundabout. Oh, this world is so dark. Yeah, but you got the light. And again, it's like walking through your house in the dark of night when you flip the switch. It's no longer dark. And if you're in the light as He Himself is in the light, that means wherever you go, darkness cannot overcome you. Because you're in the light. And the light always pushes back the darkness. Darkness can't stay in the light. When it goes on, darkness flees. And so as we walk in the light, there's no darkness, there's no deception, there's the durability of fellowship. By the deep cleansing blood of Jesus. And we're not denying sin. We're confessing. Knowing Jesus Christ the righteous is our defense attorney. Our advocate. So we can do as Jesus did. Walking in the light. It's not the light that's growing dim. It's eye trouble. That's the problem. It's blindness. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. Listen to what John says. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has, note this, blinded his eyes. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to read one final thing to you and we will be finished tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's the deal. Paul explains this so well. It is not getting darker. The darkness is passing away. The light has already begun to shine, John writes. And Paul explains, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It is not that it's getting darker. The truth is, we are seeing more people walking blind. And there is darkness in their blindness. That people are blind to the ever-increasing light of the gospel of Jesus. 
It's that people are not able to see it. So what do we do with these blind people all around and with the increase of of lawlessness and the, and the, the decrease of love among those who are blind even though there's an increasing light? I mean, from John's perspective, think about it this way. For 4,000 years, this world was not under grace. It was under, it was under law. But now grace has come. Light. The light of the Gospel of Jesus is here, man. The light has begun to shine and the darkness is starting to fade. That's the reality of the days in which we live. Light is on the increase. But people are blind to it. What do we do? Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Don't just do you. Preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And you are walking in the light as He is in the light because here at the end of the age, the true light is already shining. We'll talk more about this Sunday evening. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You will now take all of this and bring it down to our very simple understanding and remembrance, Lord. May we key in truly on that seventh verse. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all transgression. Father, this is such a vital and key and wonderful verse in Your Word. I so thank You for inspiring John to write it the way he did. Father, I pray that as we continue to think about this and we read through this letter and we talk about it together in this season, that we as a fellowship will embrace walking in the light together. In Koinonia, washed by the blood. Father, sometimes I I think, wow, Your Word is profound. And there's so much to process, but really it's quite simple. Just help us to do what Jesus did. I pray any comparison in our lives will be a comparison of ourselves to Jesus and a patterning ourselves after Jesus. To love what You love, Lord Jesus. To treat people the way You did. To pray like You did. To believe like You did. To care like You did. To feel the things You felt. See what You saw. Hear what You heard. And oh Lord, to speak Your Word. Even as You spoke it. For you yourself are in the light. Oh, we just, we sang earlier, we want more of you, more of you, Lord Jesus. And so I pray that you will bring us closer to you in the light. Lord, we're going to share communion together here, which is such that a beautiful expression of koinonia. And as we, as we do this, Lord, draw us near. In Jesus' name.